I invite now Dr. Rios to come and deliver the first sermon in North Shore Alliance Church in 2022. Uh, thanks, Dave. Well, uh, Happy New Year to those of you who've made it this morning. I'm grateful to see your faces. Thanks for braving the weather. Uh, thanks uh, for being here. Thanks to those of you who are tuning in at home. If you're at home, you don't know that the tent collapsed this morning uh, under the weather. I, I was telling some of the ushers that I had walked around it seven times by accident, and then it fell down. I don't know my own power sometimes. No, <clears throat> it was the weight of the snow that did it to us. Before I begin, just to say that our family is, um, we're one month in. We've been in Canada now for one month, and we, are, we still don't have a place to live permanently, so we ask you to continue to pray for us as we seek uh, the Lord's will and where we're supposed to be. We have a place to be for this next month, which is great, so we're not homeless. That's nice. Uh, but we're still praying and we're still looking and still waiting. Um, and it's not a market that's terribly favorable to renters at the moment, as you may or may not know. Uh, so just pray. Pray for that right place. Pray for that family that uh, is looking for people like us to live in their house and that those things would be put together. They'd be wonderful. Um, I want to welcome you to the new year, although I do want to say that the church year began with Advent and just continues into this season, which is um, Christmas tide and Epiphany. And that's actually where we are. We're in the Epiphany season. Uh, the 12 days of Christmas, which you know from the song, are ongoing, actually starts on Christmas Day. We're on the ninth day of Christmas right now. Uh, I don't remember what gifts you get on the ninth day. Paul, what's on the ninth day? Nine ladies dancing. No one got me nine ladies dancing for the ninth day of Christmas just now. Uh, but Epiphany season lasts from Christmas until January 6th, which is the day when the Magi traditionally arrive at this point, uh, which means it's actually quite appropriate to say Merry Christmas uh, all these days. It doesn't end on Christmas. It continues through this. And if you haven't yet taken down your Christmas decorations, it's not that you're lazy so much as just liturgical. Um, so the arrival of the Magi and the concept of epiphanies are going to be the focus of the next few weeks here we have together in January, and they're going to form another mini-sermon series kind of on this theme, where we look at different ways the light goes on for people who encounter Jesus, people having epiphanies. This week we're going to focus on the Magi and how it is that nature led them to Christ. Uh, and in the weeks that follow, we'll look at reason in the scriptures, we'll look at the question of truth and other religions, and we'll also look at the idea of encounter and how we meet the Holy Spirit. And for each of these weeks, we're going to use the Magi as a kind of running theme uh, throughout, and also just making the most of this season together, because it doesn't just end with Christmas Sunday, it goes on. So let's begin by introducing the Magi. And the place to begin with this was with their story as recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going to read this for you now. It'll be up on the screen behind us. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, 
For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Well, it's a famous, it's a well-known story. It's quite sentimentalized and quite romanticized. We have our song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. We don't sing that as much anymore because it's not so popular to say Orient, although the word just means of the East. We have an Oriental and Occidental, meaning of the West. Uh, there's a holiday in Spanish culture called the Dia de los Tres Reyes, the Day of the Three Kings, which is also January 6th. And in the tradition, the three kings are even named. You know their names? Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, which are great pet names. So if you have a cat, I'm going to recommend Caspar, a dog, uh, Balthazar, and if you have a llama, Melchior. Melchior the llama seems about right to me. Now, all this tradition stuff is nice, but there's actually no evidence of it. And first of all, we have no mention whatsoever of how many of the Magi there were. There might have been two of them, or there could have been 15. There's no number given here. And we've concluded there were three because they brought three gifts. Uh, Magoi is an unspecified plural. It could be any number of people involved in this. Second, there's no mention that they were kings. I'm not sure how they became kings. But from the text, they're just ordinary dudes. In fact, magoi is an unspecified plural, meaning uh, an unspecified group of people. It could be men and women magi, although most likely it was men, but you don't know. We don't have any information on them beyond these things. However, there are a few things we do know for sure. Number one is this. They brought three kingly gifts. Okay? The gifts they bring of gold, frankincense, or myrrh are expensive gifts. They're, they're kingly gifts. Now, there's been some attempts in church tradition to tie the gifts to, like, Jesus' role and mission, like gold for kingship and frankincense for divinity and myrrh for his death and burial. I don't know. It's kind of a stretch, but it's fine. If you like that, you can go with it, and you're going to be fine. But for me, maybe, maybe not. They're expensive. That's probably the most important thing. They're very expensive gifts. All right? Second thing we know about the Magi is they came from the east they came from the east. Uh, geographically, this is going to be east of Israel. And there's going to be, a, we're going to put a map up next. Here we go. One, two, three, map. All right, let's look at this. Israel, you see the, the green space with Judea. This is the uh, Middle East, about 30 AD. Judea is there. And east is Parthia and Iran. Most likely, the Magi are Persians coming from Persia. That's probably where the East refers to. Now, the Persian Empire had been one of the key global players in the centuries before Christ, and although they've been conquered by Alexander the Great, they were still culturally there out in the East. So in all likelihood, there are three Persian wise men, or magoi, which is the Greek word for this, and that's the third thing we know for sure about them. They are magi. Now, magi means wise men or possibly just magicians. 
Uh, in fact, the word magoi is the root word that we get for magic. And usually for these men from the East, probably identifies them as essentially Zoroastrian priests. Here we go down the rabbit hole for a moment. Uh, Zoroastrianism was the dominant religion in ancient Persia, probably pretty much right up until the rise of Islam in the 700s AD. Uh, so Zoroaster, also known as Zarathustra, if you've read your Nietzsche, is the founder of the religion. Sometimes he's hailed as the father of astrology. And a significant part of the religion he left behind focuses on the ritual purity of fire. Uh, sometimes it's said that Zoroastrians worship fire. They don't really worship fire, but they worship in fire temples where the purity of fire is exalted. Fire is a symbol of purity in Zoroastrianism. So to put the pieces together briefly, this makes the Magi a group of ancient astronomers or astrologers. In short, they were men of natural science, probably some of the best people of natural science of their time. Now, this invites some points of clarity because I think we can get confused when we step into the ancient world. In virtually every ancient culture and religion that exists, the study of the stars and attempts at divination or figuring out what the stars mean for us are prominent. It's common in every ancient culture. And what is more, in the ancient world, astronomy was one of the seven liberal arts. If you don't know about the seven liberal arts, there's seven of them. There's a trivium, where we get the word trivia, and quadrivium. This will be on the quiz later, so be prepared for this. The trivium is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. You have to master these things first. And then when you've mastered them, you can move on to the quadrivium, which is arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Astronomy was one of the seats of ancient knowledge. Now, within that portfolio of ancient knowledge, astronomy wasn't merely the study of stars. It was also the study of calendars and events. It's how you knew what season it was. You knew the times and dates of the year because you'd paid attention to your astronomy. In fact, if you look closely at a passage like Genesis 1, when God creates the sun, moon, and stars, what he's creating is time. The sun tells you the days. The moon tells you the months. And the stars tell you the seasons. It's time that God establishes in the beginning. And study of astronomy is the study of time. Now remember, before we understood things like heliocentrism, right? That the sun is at the center of our, 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 um, our solar system and not us. Before we understood that, how the heavens moved posed the single greatest challenge for human minds. Why do some heavenly bodies wander when others do not? The word planet is from the Latin word planao, means it wanders around. It doesn't move like the other things in the heavens. Why? What's going on there? Oh, well, how do we predict eclipses? That was a great puzzle. Why are some stars visible in winter and other stars visible in summer? Why do the stars change when I change my location on the planet? Now, these magi were likely experts in the best thinking we had about those subjects at the time. They're the best minds in the world at the time, thinking about these things. Now, we should be extra clear about one thing. In the ancient world, disciplines were never siloed off from one another like they are today. An event in the skies naturally had implications for events happening on Earth. Every phenomenon was interconnected with every other phenomenon you experienced. And in a world like that, astronomy and astrology kind of existed hand in hand. If you're going to study the stars, you're going to study meaning from the stars. It's just what you did. So let me summarize what we know about the Magi. They weren't kings, and there may or may not have been three of them, but they brought kingly gifts. They came from the east in all likelihood Persia, and they were men of science. And that is a wonderful place for a moment to pause and marvel, because the first people from the Gentile world to acknowledge Jesus as king were scientists. 
So, this invites some question, namely, how did nature and the study of the natural world lead these magi to Christ? How did nature facilitate their epiphany? Remember, epiphany is the light going on. It occurred to them what happened. So how did this facilitate it? Well, let's consider the evidence from the story in Matthew first. So these magi, whether 2 or 15, were studying their star charts in the east, like I've said, likely somewhere in Persia, when they noticed something strange. Their studies, their observations, and their charts pointed to a special event happening to the west of them. And they decided, like good men of science, to go see things for themselves. Let's go see this thing. Let's follow it. So the Magi travel west until they reach Jerusalem, and they promptly ask essentially the reigning King Herod where the new king had been born. And this indicates that they, like many scientists, are much better at science than politics. They just they had their question, Who, where's the guy who was born king? And uh, there's this ominous verse in Matthew that says, Herod, um, what does it say? I should go back and read it again. It says, when Herod heard this news, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Uh, Herod's the kind of temper where he hears bad news and other people get nervous. And so they go. They ask questions. They learn from Jewish scribes that a king was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, and off they go to find the king. Now, some interesting details that maybe we've missed is that Herod, later in Matthew 2.16, orders the slaughter of all babies two years old and younger. I think I've got the verse up on the screen for you. Matthew 2.16 Oh, it's all right. He says there, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, that's interesting because it indicates that it's been two years since the Magi first saw the sign in the heavens, indicating that that's the time when the king had been born. This very likely means that Jesus was two when the Magi arrived at his birth. So they probably didn't arrive on the night with the shepherds. Another kind of romantic, I'm sorry if you have a very romantic idea of the Magi arriving at the same time as the shepherds and the kings giving the gifts to the baby Jesus. They probably give the gifts to two-year-old Jesus, um, which means he tried to eat the gold and he chewed on the frankincense and Mary had to swat him away from the myrrh. Matthew 2.9 rounds out the story of the Magi's pursuit and tells us the reason why we put stars on top of our Christmas trees. It says, The star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. In other words, they followed the evidence where it led, and it led them to the house where Mary was with the baby Jesus. So the star prompts a few questions, namely, just what kind of astrological phenomenon are we dealing with here? What's going on with this star? There's a few things we can say. We can guess. Was it a supernova? Did God blow up a star to celebrate the birth of his son? I don't know. He might have. I wouldn't put it beyond him. It seems interesting. If so, we'd probably anticipate other ancient records to document the event, because when supernovas go, they're visible even in daytime. All right? Was it a planetary confluence? Did Venus, the morning star, rise in a certain way at a certain time relative to other astrological phenomena? Or was it some kind of angelic being shining for only the Magi to see that only appeared to be a star but wasn't in actuality a star? The answer is we're not entirely sure what kind of phenomena this was. But perhaps this line of questioning prompts a deeper question. Was this star something only the Magi could see or could anyone see it? Was it just the Magi who saw it, or did everybody see it? 
One of the weird things about the text is the way the star appears to move. Did you catch that? And the star moved in front of them till it came to rest over where the child was? You'd think if there was a moving star, a lot more people would be chasing it. But it looks like just the Magi. So how is it that nature led the Magi to the Christ child? I think there's three possible answers to this. Um, they're not going to be up on this screen because I'm going to go over them pretty quickly. Answer possible number one. The star was a documented astrological phenomenon, a supernova, a planetary confluence, or some other event. With this in mind, what we can do is we can attempt to utilize all that we know of astronomy and all backpedaling in astronomy to try and explain it. The problem with this answer is that for all we can know, we're still going to have trouble explaining how it is the star moved. That's going to, we're going to come up against the limits of what we can figure out if we rely on that. Answer number two, possible is this. The magi in following the star are chasing a discipline-specific phenomenon. Let me explain. The magi from within the arcane workings of their own scientific knowledge, from within the bounds of their own Zoroastrian culture and history, deduced an astral phenomenon and interpreted it in light of their own discipline. Let me put it this another way. When you become an expert in your field, you know how to read information according to that expertise that people not in that field don't know how to read. Some of you are accountants, and you can read spreadsheets and determine information from this. I lack this arcane knowledge of spreadsheets. I can't read them like you can read them. But when you're in a discipline and when you're a scientist and you have this information, sometimes you're reading information and you can deduce things from it that, in, that uninitiated can't. And there's a strong chance these magi can see something in the heavens that nobody else can see because it's their entire life and discipline. Seeing the star might have been just such a thing where God revealed his son to the magi through their science rather than through the physical sign that was immediately visible to everyone else. Or, answer number three, and this is actually what I think, we can argue the experience of the Magi was some combination of both previous answers. That God used their arcane knowledge of astronomers in combination with his own miraculous signposting to draw these men to celebrate the birth of his son. I think they saw something, and I think there was something in their discipline. Together, these things work together. Now, I don't think you have to take a position. I don't think this is a hill we have to die on in our faith. What kind of star was it? And we don't need to fight about this. It's really not a big deal. God may have put a star in the sky just to celebrate the birth of his Jesus, or he may have laid the scenes of seeds of finding his child in the studies of the Magi. Either way, the result is the same. The Magi, within their scientific discipline, were led to an epiphany. They found the light. So the Magi's arrival suggests something far more significant for the rest of us as well, and that's this. There is something within the faithful study of nature that leads us to the potential for faith. I'll say that again. There is something within the faithful study of nature, when we look carefully at our natural world, that leads us to the potential for faith. It's not inevitable. It's got a potential way to lead us into faith. Whether the Magi saw an actual star and followed it faithfully, or whether the Magi pursued their discipline and followed it faithfully, in either case, there was something in this natural world that faithfully followed, led them to the Christ child. And I think the principle is true for us as well. In fact, it's actually something of an article of faith that nature points in some ways to the knowledge of God. Two scriptures to consider for just a moment. The first is the opening words of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verses 1 to 3. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. 
It's one of the most famous psalms, and it seems like a pretty straightforward claim. The natural world declares God's glory, and somehow it's both obvious and silent at the same time. I think this is a bit tricky. It begs the question, how do we learn to hear this obvious message from the heavens? What are we going to do? We're going to come back to that question in a minute. A second passage that helps us is found at the beginning of the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, where Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since, and here's maybe the key verse, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, Paul's argument is pretty clear. Simple observation of the natural world is sufficient evidence for the judgment of God to apply to humans. That's the argument he makes. If you've observed the natural world, you stand condemned, which is not what we're going to talk about this morning, but you can sit with that later and mull on it. Now, I think it's fair to say that what is obvious to the psalmist and to the Apostle Paul may not be as obvious to us today. These connections are not as clear to us as they appear to be to the psalmist and to Paul. How do we hear the silent voice of nature speaking? How do we decode the obvious rhetoric of the natural world? Well, let's assume for the moment that the natural world does indeed preach a sermon that leads us to Christ. What do we need to do to hear that sermon? And why is it that not everyone seems to hear it in the same way? I want to address the second question first. Why does not everyone hear it? There are likely many answers to this question. I think there are probably lots of answers. But there's one I think is especially good, and it's going to be contained in the following principle. Ready? The principle is this. I think God's voice is limited by a law of faith. Okay? God's voice is limited by a law of faith. And this takes some explanation. Um, Last time I spoke with you, I cited the passage from Matthew 12, 20, where Matthew, quoting Isaiah, highlights the gentleness of King Jesus. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Some of the things that Matthew says. The important thing for us is that King Jesus, like God the Father, is not a bully. He's gentle. And that means, by extension, that he also preserves our freedom to choose. And God's use of natural signs never violates our free will. And that's what I mean by a law of faith, so that faith will never be forced upon God's creatures. God masks or hides his self-revelation in nature. This is a complex point, but I think it's true. So that you will never be forced to believe, so that you never lose your freedom. God doesn't overplay his signs. He leaves it somewhat masked. I think Blaise Pascal, uh, the 17th century scientist and philosopher, He says it best. He's writing of the Christian faith. He says this, "Um, There is enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. Pascal, there's enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. 
In other words, there's just enough evidence for God in nature that those who wish to find God will find him without violating their freedom. And there's just enough evidence against God in nature that those who do not wish to find God will not find him. And the natural evidence for God is masked critically as a way to preserve our human freedom. There's enough light to see and enough darkness so that you won't be bullied into seeing. The evidence is there, but you will always remain free to choose it or not. The truth of the matter is that if, is this, in all likelihood, if God made it obvious, we would probably treat it with contempt. If God did make it super obvious, we would take it for granted. Frederick Buechner, in a sermon called Message in the Stars, imagines a situation where overnight uh, God rearranges the stars in the Milky Way to perform to form some uh, astral message for us, like, I'm real, okay? And then he says, you know, some people would fall on their knees and worship on the spot. Other people would stand and marvel, and other people would look and then start to go about their business. And in time, they'd want other signs and other ways and other means. They'd want more ways of God to prove himself. It wouldn't be sufficient. They would just take it for granted. They wouldn't be satisfied until God did what they wanted, when they wanted, and how they wanted. In fact, they wouldn't be satisfied until God obeyed them. And I think the truth of the matter is that many of the people who say, I would believe if I saw a sign, would either reject the sign, doubt the sign, or demand ever-increasing signs. They don't want a sign. They want to be in control. So once again, God has given enough for those who want to see, and enough darkness for those of a contrary disposition. And this preserves what I called a law of faith, that faith without freedom is not faith. God doesn't force you. So let's presume for a moment that we are listening, that we want to hear God's voice, that we do want to see and hear him. How do we go about it? How are we going to attend to the silent yet mysteriously obvious voice? And for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to suggest three ways that we can hear God through nature. All right, pretty straightforward. Number one is this, we're going to hear God's voice through order. We hear God's voice through order. This is something we draw from Romans 1.20, where Paul again says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, something of the character of God is imprinted on the deep nature of the world, and we can perceive this especially in our attention to order and the ordering of the world. Now, for my money, there is no aspect of order that is more vivid than mathematics. There is something deeply impressive about the way mathematics operate undergirding almost all of our experiences. Some of you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about the wonder that is mathematics. There is an underlying order to these things, an order that we take very much for granted. None of you purchases five apples at the store and then gets home and finds out that there are actually two or seven in your bag. You've just taken for granted the fact that five is always five, right? And if an apple has disappeared, you have to blame someone else, like your ability to count or your children's hunger in the car. Five will always be the same. None of you sighs in relief that the engineers who design our aircrafts fashion them based on calculations, based on the immutability of numbers. And they haven't relied instead on guesswork. Aren't you glad that engineers don't guess? Aren't you glad that engineers don't sacrifice sheep and then hold up their entrails to say, I think it'll fly today? 
They're trusting in number, which we rely on for these things. Number is a magnificent constant in the universe. Mathematics is so powerful and has been so evocative that people like Pythagoras wanted us to worship numbers. In fact, if you didn't know, his, the Pythagorean theorem attributed to him was part of the arcane and secret knowledge of his sect. It was a point of worship that they discovered this thing. The point is not for us to worship maths. The point is to see that in mathematics we encounter an ordering of our universe that has no reason to exist on its own with consistently. Why should two and two make four the universe over? Why is it constant? Why does the gravitational constant hold? Aren't we lucky that it does? If it didn't, things would go very wrong. Why should the ordering of maths function like an undercurrent, like an underlying grammar to all of our experienced phenomena? The answer, in Christian terms, is that order points to mind, and that the mind that gives life to the ordering of our natural world, including but not limited to mathematics, is the mind of God. Now, this is in part what I think is meant by Jesus being called the Alpha and the Omega. You guys know that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But when we call Jesus the Logos, we're also saying that he is this principle of order. And when we give him this alphabet, we're saying that if you're going to make sense of the universe, the grammar of your experience, you're going to appeal to Christ to make sense of it. He is an image of the mind that makes sense of all of our experiences. All right, order points us to God, but alongside order, there's a second voice. And the second way we can hear God's voice is through moral law. The second way we hear God's voice is through moral law. Earlier, I read only the opening of Psalm 19, but I want to look at some of the subsequent verses with you now. I'll read verses 1 to 10. So here we begin. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now there's a turn in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, quite explicitly, the psalmist has compared the visible ordering of the sun and the heavens to the visible ordering of law in men's hearts. He looks to the sun moving in the sky, and he says, well, look at the order of that, and he looks to the law within the heart, he says, look at the order of that, and he's combined the two. They're both part of his worship. In other words, mirroring the outer order we perceive in the universe is an inner order that points to things like right and wrong. Now, in some ways, this is exactly the same case with mathematics as well. Our study of maths points to our deep hunger for reconciliation. We hate problems that don't add up. You ever watched a show with a dissatisfying ending or when the bad guy got away? Doesn't that drive you crazy? We want to tie things off with a bow. We want to see things end. We want a reconciliation to close these things out. It's, we hate problems that don't add up. I think it's fascinating that the great scientific question of our age is one of reconciling mathematics. How, do, how does general relativity and quantum physics add up? It's a great question, burning. We also crave it. We want justice. 
We want things to be right. For the record, we are not always happy when we are the ones who have to be made right. Uh, We like it when other people get made right. Now, we don't always agree on what constitutes right and wrong, and cultures have had differences throughout history, but one thing is perfectly constant. Every culture agrees that there is right and there is wrong, and when there has been done wrong, it ought to be made right. And attending to that sense of right and wrong is another natural pathway to the knowledge of God. Okay, I said there were three voices, and here's the third one. Third is that we hear God's voice through beauty. We hear God's voice through beauty. It's common for people to speak of a problem of evil. It's usually framed in the form of a question. If God is good, why does evil exist? It's a good question. I actually think it has really good answers. But there's an inversion of the question that I think we can also ask as well. If no God exists, if there is no reason, mind, or plan to the universe, then why should beauty exist? Have you thought of it that way? If there's nothing giving order and purpose to the universe, why is beauty here? This is a different kind of troubling question. Why should the stars be beautiful? Why should the snow on the mountains be beautiful? Why should the sea be beautiful? Why should young men and women be beautiful? Why should infants be beautiful? Why sunrises, sunsets, fogs, snowfalls, breezes, spring days, dance, art, poetry, jellyfish, birds, and tigers, why should they be beautiful? Why should any of it be beautiful at all? The suggestion, subtle but persistent, is that if we begin to listen to the voice of nature and beauty, it will call us inexorably into worship. G.K. Chesterton says that the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. The world will never starve for things of which we should be marveling at. The only thing it might starve of is people who attend to it and worship and marvel when it's there. And that is why, at a certain point in all of our knowledge and all our studies, the only proper response is worship. And this, in fact, is the greatest lesson the Magi teach us. These men had dedicated their lives to the study of the stars, and when the object of their seeking had arrived, when the light that gives light to the stars had come, when the purity of which fire was just an image was present to them, worship was the only proper response. In this way, the Magi point us not only to the infant Jesus, but somehow to the fact that nature points to Christ as king. And I pray that we, this epiphany season, may be led similarly to worship at the feet of Christ, bringing our own gifts to glorify him and honor him. And may we do this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.